0: Amen. I want to tell you, I love that song. And uh, I love to have these guys in particular lead us through it. You know, I, I find that my favorite rendition of whatever song it is that we do here is the way that they do it. I've come to the conclusion. And, but really, I mean, I want you to think about it. I, I've had the privilege three times now in the last, I don't know, 12, 14 hours, however long it's been at this point, to hear you guys sing at this church Great Are You, Lord. And, uh, and there were several times where I just quieted up to hear that. That is a glorious declaration. That is exactly what it is we ought to be singing, and not just with our lips, but with the whole of our lives. So that is a beautiful, beautiful song. So thank you for singing out, because it was good for my soul. All right, well, last week, if you were with us, you know we began a study of the book of 2 Corinthians, having just completed 1 Corinthians, and... You know how that book began. You know that Paul came to sit down, he began to write 2 Corinthians, and immediately what was on his mind, what he addressed first, was the topic of suffering, and you know why. There was a backstory. So Paul sits down and he writes 2 Corinthians. He begins with suffering because he's fresh off of an experience of really intense suffering. Like, I think I'm going to die suffering. I've resigned myself to the fact that this is it kind of suffering. Now, it wasn't it, thus the letter... But nevertheless, that's pretty intense. And so Paul sits down to write this letter, and no doubt his hand is still shaking from the intensity of the experience that he's been through in the city of Ephesus, where he was literally almost killed, and he starts the letter with suffering on his mind. But as we continue our study of the letter, we'll see that suffering was not the only thing on the mind of the Apostle Paul. And in addition to that, okay, that experience in Ephesus was not the only reason that Paul had been and continued to suffer as of the beginning of this letter. In addition to that, Paul, when he sits down to write, is also suffering the indignity and the injury. And it's both of having these people in this church at the city of Corinth that, now think about this, he spent a year and a half of his life personally evangelizing, personally mentoring, personally discipling. Now, as of the writing of this letter, questioning his character, doubting his integrity, and openly talking amongst themselves about whether or not he's been truthful with them. That's astonishing! That's hurtful. And the reason for that has mostly to do with his itinerary. So he ended 1 Corinthians, as you'll recall, a few weeks ago, in part by saying, "Hey guys, let me give you my travel plan, so my travel plans paul said are, are this i 'm going to go to Macedonia from Ephesus, and on the way i 'm going to stop in corinth and i 'm going to see you guys, but instead of traveling by boat, which is much more quick i 'm going to travel by land to make some stops along the way, so i 'm probably not going to get to you until winter writes that at the end of the letter, signs off, sends it to these guys that 's their expectation as of the end of that letter that 's his expectation. But then what happens is Timothy, one of his disciples who 's just been in the city of Corinth, shows up at Paul's door in Ephesus. And we don't know exactly what they talked about, but we do know that Paul suddenly massively accelerated his plans. Like he dropped everything in Ephesus, packed his bags, and got on a boat, much more quick way of traveling, and went directly to the city of Corinth. And we know, because we'll see it in this passage today, that it did not go well when he got there. It was what he called a painful visit. That implies some things, doesn't it? It was difficult, man. There was friction. There was heat. There was contention. There was not meeting of the minds. There was not seeing eye to eye. There were none of those things present. It was hurtful. His painful visit. So at the end of his painful visit, he says to them, listen, I'm going to change my plan. So originally I was just going to stop here once on my way to Macedonia. Now I'm going to go to Macedonia and I'm going to come back here and see you a second time. See you guys later. And he went to Macedonia, and really under the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord, that's clear as you read this. I mean, everything he's doing is being directed by the Holy Spirit. He changed his plan. He reasoned, no doubt, within himself that, you know what? It didn't go so well the last time that I was there. And I don't know that my relationship with these people, with this church that I've planted, can survive another painful visit like that. So instead of going back, I think it would be better for them if I wrote them a letter and dealt with our issues in writing, because my presence is bringing more heat than light. And so then he changed his plans, and instead of going back to Corinth, he sent them a painful letter, and he went back to Ephesus. But the end result of that is there, I mean, there were people in the city of Corinth going, hey, well, wait a minute, because he promised he was going to come back, and now he didn't keep his promise to come back. And so why do you think he didn't keep his promise to come back? Do you think that that was really what he intended to do in the first place? Or do you think he was just trying to pacify us and just get the heck out of town because it didn't go so well the last time he was here? Do you think he's sick of us? Do you think he doesn't want to see us? Do you think he doesn't care enough now about us to come back and see us in person? And he just sort of wrote us a letter to just kind of go, yeah, I'll pat you guys on the head, but actually I care more about the Ephesian people, or I care more more about these Macedonian people. They get along with me a little bit better. Like, what's going on here? And they're questioning his character and his integrity. They're questioning his truthfulness. Was he truthful with us? Or was this plan to just send us a letter, his plan all along? And so, Paul, having begun this letter by talking about suffering, he now continues this letter by talking about truthfulness. And here's what he says as I would summarize it anyway. He says that as Christians we serve a truthful God who not only forgives all of our untruthfulness. And I want to pause in the middle of the statement and just park on that for a second. And the reason I want to do that is because our tendency when it comes to a message on truthfulness is to recognize the reality, the truth about every single one of us. And the reality, the truth about every one of us is we have a whole pile of untruthfulness that we have been heaping up throughout the entire course of our lives. Things that we've said, ways that we've lived. We have, all of us, massively struggled with this issue. So the temptation then is to hear a message like this, to feel all beat up as a result of it, and to walk out of here with our head hanging thinking, man, what a filthy dirty person that I am. And that is the exact opposite of the way that you should leave today. That pile should drive you to the one who can take it for you. Jesus died to save you from it and not just to forgive you of the sin of it, but he died for the shame of it. He died for the guilt of it. He died for everything that would cause you to hang your head and walk out of here lowly. We will come to the Lord's table today where we are reminded, not just in word, but with our senses, that he suffered and died to free you from that. So let me read the statement again then. As Christians, we serve a truthful God who not only forgives all of our untruthfulness and redeems it. Just throwing that in. But who then also calls us, and by His Spirit, and through His Word, and together with His people, enables us to become more and more truthful people, to die more and more unto untruthfulness, and to live a more and more truthful life, a life that more clearly manifests the character and the integrity of and the truthfulness of our Savior. I mean, if you just think it through for a minute, that kind of makes sense, because Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of all, self-identifies as the truth. So then if He's our Master, if He's our Lord, if He's our King, if He's the one that we're getting up every day and dying to ourselves so that we now can follow Him, will that not be a pathway of truth? Will that not require us, indeed lead us, To speak and to live truthfully. It will. And when we don't, what do we do? Well, we hang our heads and we leave church going, wow, what a dirty person. No. We come back to the Savior and we say, you know, I blew it this time. And he forgives us. But then he calls us to turn from our untruthfulness. That's repentance. Repentance. It's not just I feel bad, forgive me, but now I'm going to continue. No, it's I feel bad, forgive me, Lord. Let me experience the joy of truly being set free from that. And now give me the power to be set free from it practically that I might learn to live and speak truthfully like the one I, I'm called to represent. So with all of that said then, we pick up our study in 2 Corinthians 1. Beginning at verse 12, we're in response to this attack on his character, Paul says this. He says, for our, don't miss that, boast is this. Now, just stop for a second. I know that we're like four words in. But if you're reading this carefully as you work through it during the week in your personal worship, I mean, you know, the word hour jumps out at you and you kind of want to go, well, who's the hour? Because I thought Paul was the one writing the letter and Paul is the one writing the letter. And primarily the hour includes him. But it's not just him. It's the little band of brothers that this guy, the Apostle Paul, does life in ministry with. It's guys like Timothy and Sylvanus and Titus and these other men that he completely lived a transparent life before. He does life in community with people before whom he lives transparently. I want you to think about that. Because I think that that is not just helpful in learning how to live a life that manifests the character and integrity and truthfulness of the Lord. I think that it's necessary. God has not just given us His Word. He has not just given us His Spirit. He has given us each other. And the reality is that all of us need a few good men or a few good women to come alongside of us to walk with us before whom we live transparently and to whom we give permission to speak freely. We need that as a part of our walk with the Lord. So who do you do that with? You know, I've got a couple of guys in my life and, uh, that are not my wife, okay? So I'm, I say that intentionally because I want you to realize that, yes, of course, she's one of those people for me. And she's a great one of those people for me. But it needs to be more than the person you're married to. Sometimes that's where the issue is. It needs to be more than the person you're married to. I have a couple of guys in my life who I know love me, who I know that I can trust, who I know correct me but only for my good, and who in fact do correct me, who come to me at times and say, hey man, I don't really think that was a very good decision. Or you know what, when you said this, I don't think you handled it the right way. Who openly question me. So how are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing with your kids? How are you doing in your integrity before the Lord? Who pray for me and I know that they pray for me because I get text message from them all the time. Hey, how can I pray for you this week? One of them called me on Friday. How are you doing? Just wanted to check in, see where you're at. How are things going? Hugely important. Necessary. One of the reasons that Paul, whose life and integrity is being questioned, can turn right around toward the people who are questioning him and use his life as the example of character, integrity, and truthfulness is because he lived transparently before these other guys. And he's able to say, you know what? To these guys, he's able to say, okay, here's the deal. This is what these people are saying about me. I live transparently before you. Is there any truth to this? Which, by the way, is a humble question, isn't it? It recognizes that we are all of us frail, frail, that we all of us fail, that we're all of us subject to being untruthful and many other things. The humble soul realizes that he or she is not always right. Even when you're really sure you are, you may not be. But he had a little community that he could come to. A collective conscience is the word that he's going to use here in just a second. And he could say, guys, here's what these people are saying about me. All right, discuss. Is that accurate? Is that right? Is that true? Is that fair? Is there any of that in me? Do you see any of this? Because you see the whole of me. And in this case, these guys said, no. That is off base entirely. Paul says, for our boast is this. And now notice what he boasts in. It's the testimony, he says, of our conscience, not just Paul's conscience, but the collective conscience of the group, that where? That in the world. We behaved in the world. And I want to pause and talk about the world for a second in regard to untruthfulness. We don't just live in a world that expects us to be untruthful. We live in a world that rewards us for being untruthful. And if you don't believe me and forgive me in advance, okay, just take a look at our presidential election. Take that in. I say that in all seriousness and in a completely nonpartisan way. Take it in. We reward untruthfulness. I was thinking about these two campaigns and I'm thinking, okay, can you imagine if a staffer in either one of these campaigns for either one of these candidates came forward and said, okay, I've got a brilliant idea. Here's what I think we ought to do. I think we ought to be completely transparent with the American people. I think that we should tell them exactly and truthfully what we think, what we believe, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. I think that guy would be looking for a new job. I really do because I don't. And maybe this is just cynical me. I don't think that's the goal at all. It's not inform the American people of the truth. They might not vote for me if I do that. It's poll. It's find out what they want me to believe, what they want me to think, what they want me to do, what they don't want me to do, and say that, and then, and then spend hundreds of millions of dollars running negative ads about the other candidate full of, typically at least, half-truths. And yet, one of these two people is going to be rewarded with the highest office in our land and arguably the most powerful position in the world. We live in a world... That rewards untruthfulness. And it's true in politics, it's true in business. There's a game that we play that involves dishonesty. And Paul's coming to us and saying, What are you doing? That's unbecoming of a follower of Christ. He's, he's the truth and we're following him and whose reward are we living for exactly? Is it the reward of this world? Because if winning here is the goal, then truth is something that we use and dispense with whenever it's convenient for us. But if, but if the goal is the reward, Of heaven, If the goal is to be salt and light, if the goal is to manifest the character of Jesus, His integrity, His truthfulness of the unseen Christ that the world sees when they realize that we're living for a different reward, that we have a different goal, that we'll speak the truth even when it's costly to us here because we have an eye on eternity and on an eternal reward that never ends. If that's the goal, then we live differently. And for the record... That's the goal. And so again, Paul says, for our boast is this, it's the, it's the testimony of our collective conscience that we behaved in the world that rewards untruthfulness. With what? With simplicity and with godly sincerity. That is to say, with a truthfulness and a candor that is not manufactured by our native human nature. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's consistent instead with the new nature that God gives to us in Christ, as Paul explains in chapter 5 of this same letter. And that we foster in community with one another. As we engage in the rhythm of grace, learning how to lay down our sins and to take up righteousness. Why? Because we're trying to please the Lord or win His favor. And No, Jesus has done that for us because we're trying to show the world a savior who is righteous, we're following his lead. So he changes our nature, which is a good thing because by nature, our human nature is guarded. It is shaded. It is ambiguous and intentionally so, and it is whenever it suits our purposes, dishonest, apart from Jesus and his purposes and his mission, apart from a transformational experience of his grace and mercy and of his forgiveness, apart from a biblical understanding of what this life is actually all about and of how this life and for all of eternity will in fact one day end. Apart from those things, Jesus who is the truth and who calls us to be a truthful people is not our supreme value. We are our own supreme value apart from those things and when we are our own supreme Value. What will we do with the truth? We'll do whatever we need to do with it to suit our purposes. Which means that at times, if it suits our purposes, we'll lie, or we'll exaggerate, or we'll tell stories that you know we haven't checked the facts on. We'll flatter people by telling them things about themselves that we don't actually believe. We'll gossip by spreading rumors and falsehoods and half truths and unchecked stories, or maybe by spreading the truth but by spreading it around to people who honestly just don't need to hear it. Think about that. The Bible comes to us and it calls us to be a loving people, and it speaks to us of love. What is love? For God so loved that He gave His Son. You hear the word atonement. It's kind of a big word, but what what is that? What does it mean? It means that Christ, by His blood, made a covering of our sins. He atoned for our sins. He covered them over before the Lord. So then the Bible comes to us and it says things like love covers a multitude, not just one, of sins. Here's what love does not do. It does not publish someone else's sins on the internet, period, ever. It doesn't. Even if somebody did that to us. Sometimes I think we're untruthful when we remain silent about the truth and we have the ability to set the record straight. So there's a lot to it. And again, Paul says, Our boast is this. He says it's the testimony of our collective conscience. I've waited out with these guys that know my life, and we're in agreement that we behaved in this world in which untruthfulness is rewarded with simplicity and godly sincerity and not by earthly wisdom which seeks to manipulate and mislead for our own selfish purposes, but by the grace of God, who by His grace has transformed our hearts, given us a new nature that we cultivate by these Spirit-empowered practices and disciplines, prayer and study of the Word and community with one another. And he says, and we have behaved this way, supremely so toward you people in Corinth. My goodness, Paul is saying, of all the people who know me, He's saying to these guys, man, you should know better than to attribute these kind of motives to me, than to doubt my character and integrity. And, and no doubt that's why it hurts so badly. I mean, it, you know, it, it stings when somebody who doesn't know you doubts your character and integrity. And you're thinking, hey, you know, boy, I've never even had a conversation with you, and this is what you're ascribing to me. You know, and that's irritating. That's annoying. When it's somebody that knows you well, it's like an arrow to the heart. It is painful it stinks. And I'm sure you've had it happen. And so then what do you do? You begin to make your case. You start going, wait a minute, you're replaying the whole of your relationship thinking, okay, of all the things over all these years that you've heard me said, of all the things over all these years that you've seen me do, of all the things over all these years that you've experienced in relationship with me, what in the world would make you think that when I said X, I meant Y? Or when I did this, here's what I was trying to accomplish or convey or cause or whatever. And yet the reality is that all of us do it all of the time. We do it in marriage, we do it in friendships, we do it in business. We do that. And why do we do that? Because we're broken. Because we're selfish, because we're sinful, because we're wounded, and we behave out of our wounds, and other people have wounded us in this particular way, and therefore then you must be trying to do the same. No, 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 don't, don't, don't attribute that to me. But we do it. We do it. And the evil one knows that we do it. It's curious to me, instructive actually, that one of the names for Satan in the Bible is the accuser. Now, why is that? Because he accuses us to each other. He accuses us to ourselves too, which is why sometimes we walk out of church after a sermon like this going, oh, crud, you know. Not the point. But he accuses us to each other too. He comes to us and says, oh, did you see what she just did there? You know what she's doing, right? She's managing you. She doesn't trust you. She doesn't believe in you. She doesn't think that you're competent to make this decision or handle this situation. That's what she's doing. That's what she's communicating. That's her real intent. Is it? It's what he wants you to believe. Do you see what he said? There you go. He said it. He said it. And you knew it was coming, didn't you? You were waiting for it. You were suspecting it because that's what you've heard from others in the past. And so now he has said it and here's what that means. It means he doesn't love you. It means he doesn't care for you. It means this. It means that. It means all kinds of sinister things. Does it really? Maybe, I guess. But what do we attribute to other people? I think one of the things you find in life is you find what you're looking for. What are you looking for in other people? If you're looking for dirt, I've said this in the past, guess what? You'll find dirt. It's there. We all have it. If you're looking for gold, you'll find that too. What are you training your eyes to look for in your relationship with other people? And you know, one of the big ideas that Beth and I teach people when we meet for premarital counseling is this idea that, you know what? What? be very helpful to your relationship if you would decide going in that you are going to ascribe sincerity to this other person, that you are going to resolve now in advance to give them the benefit of the doubt. So then when the evil one comes and goes, did you see what she did? Do you know what that means? Do you see what that is? That's what she's trying to... You go, wait a minute, hang on a second. Is that consistent with the person that I know her to be? Or is that consistent with the person that I know him to be? Is it? Most often times, no. So now I know whose voice that is. And I know what to do with it. But here is the problem. Sometimes we let each other down. We are broken. We are sinful. We give each other good reason to doubt the other person. We do it. We give the evil one all kinds of material. So then when he comes and goes, "Uh uh-huh, this is just like the last time. You know, sometimes there is a last time, and maybe this time is just like it. But I think that what you'll find is that the other person deserves the benefit of the doubt a lot more frequently than that person receives it. So Paul again says, for our boast is this, it's the testimony of our collective conscience, which is that we behaved in the world, which, oh man, it's a difficult place to do this in, with simplicity and godly sincerity, and not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, who by His grace has transformed our hearts and given us a new nature, and supremely so have we behaved this way, he says, toward you who know me so very well, and therefore should have known better to doubt my character the way that you have done. To which he adds, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. He's saying, listen, what you read and understand is exactly what we mean to convey. This isn't tricky. We're not trying to fool you in this. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope that you will fully understand just as you did Partially understand us that what? Because this ups the ante significantly. He says that on the day of our Lord Jesus. Well, what day is that? It's the day of judgment. It's the last day. It's the day, Paul's saying, when God will judge me. And he's saying to these people in Corinth, when God will judge you. And in the process of judging it, what will he do? He will fully reveal all of the thoughts and motives and intentions of our hearts perfectly, accurately, for exactly what they were. He says, let me tell you what's going to happen on that day. He says, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you people in Corinth who are doubting us now will actually boast of us because on that day, if not before, you'll realize, oh, wait a minute, they were shooting straight with me. It's not as we suspected, as we attributed, as we assigned. And then he says this, he says, even as we will boast of you, which means what? Well, I think to me at least, it means that Paul is doing for them what they did not do for him. And even though unlike him, they probably don't deserve it. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. He's a very gracious man. He says, because I was sure of this, that you would ascribe sincerity to me. Now he starts talking about his plan. Let me tell you what happened. He says, I wanted to come to you first on my way to Macedonia, which, by the way, he did do, so that you might then have a second experience of grace when I stopped back by Corinth on my way back to Ephesus, which he did not do. But what he's saying is, that sincerely was my plan in that moment when I shared that plan with you. Why do you doubt that? In other words, Paul's saying, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, which he did, and then also to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea, which he did not do. But he's saying, my original plan was to see you twice. But when I got out of there, I realized, man, if I go back and see these people a second time and it blows up the way it just did, we might be done. And that's good for no one. So I sent a letter instead. He says, was I vacillating? Was I lying to you? Was I hiding something? Was I being duplicitous in some way when I told you that I wanted to do this? To stop by a second time? Do I make my plans? And you people know me, he's saying. So do I make my plans? Do I have a history of this? Is there any track record of me making my plans according to the flesh? Ready, here's what the flesh does, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. And now he answers his own question. And he does it by tying his faithfulness in speech toward them to the faithfulness of the one that he's following, the one that he proclaims, the one that he serves. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been faithful, is the idea, in that it has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He's saying, just like Jesus speaks truthfully, we speak truthfully too. Now here's the difference. I mean, I can tell you that I'm going to be at your house at 5 o'clock, hoping to eat at 5.30. Just going to throw that out there. Otherwise, we need a snack, okay? But I can tell you that I'm coming. I'm going to be there at 5, and I'm totally sincere, and I'm telling you the truth. And then, you know, my car breaks down, or I get in an accident, or there's a whole bunch of traffic, or I have a heart attack and die. I can't keep my word. That doesn't mean that it wasn't truthfully spoken. God always keeps His word. There's no heart attack coming for him. There's no traffic that thwarts his purposes. And in fact, that's different. But the point is that when we speak, when we make representations and throw in the way that we live, Okay, look, we're not going to always be able to keep our promises. There are going to be things that thwart us from keeping our word. And we would do well, by the way, to remember that we need to manage the expectations of other people and help them understand why we didn't do what we said that we were going to do, when we said we were going to do it, how we said we were going to do it, and all of that, that's really helpful. It's like oil in the engine of relationship. But when we say it, It should reflect the character and the integrity and the truthfulness of Christ. Will it always? No. But what does that cause for? Well, it should cause you to walk out of here with your head. No. It should cause you to come back to the Savior and to say, all right, listen, I blew this one. I need you to forgive me of this. And authentically to know you're forgiven of this to be filled with the joy of this and in the strength of the joy of that to turn from that untruthfulness, to do that which you can, to undo that untruthfulness and together in community with a few good men or women by the power of God's Spirit to seek again to take up truthfulness as your way of life. Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus and our lives should reflect that kind of integrity. That is why he continues... That it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us. And these people knew that. They witnessed the power of the ministry of these people, including Paul, in their midst. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So why would you expect us, therefore, then to live differently But I love what he says, given his spirit in our hearts. And I say that because the heart is the key. And Jesus says exactly the same thing. He says in Matthew 15, verse 18, that what comes out of the mouth, and you can just add to that the life. It's the wellspring of life we read elsewhere. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And here's the problem with my heart. I can't change it. I can't wash it, I can't clean it. I can't in a sustained manner make a difference with it. I can't. I don't have I don't have that power. It's against my nature. And you can't change yours. Coming to Christ means giving up on your ability to make yourself better and good and please him and all of these other things that are impossible for us in our brokenness and sinfulness to do. And it's, it's frankly the relief of taking your heart and bringing it to Him and saying, here, I, I don't know what to do with this. I, I've tried, I just I, I can't. And, and just and, and watching Him take it and clean it and empower it and enable you to be a different kind of person. So Paul concludes by saying this. He says, but I call God to witness against me. That's pretty serious. My buddies have witnessed. Now I call God himself who will judge me on that last day to witness against me. It was to spare you from having to endure another one of these painful visits, like the last one that we just had, that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. And he's saying, that's my operation in your life. And just know this, it would not have been joyful if I came back. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, well then who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did in the painful letter that I sent in the place of another painful visit, almost certainly to get all the hard stuff out of the way, so that when I came, eventually... I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So that's where we'll pick it up again next week. But bottom line, as Christians, we serve a truthful God who not only forgives and redeems all of our untruthfulness, but then who calls us to turn from it, calls us to get up, calls us to die to our untruthfulness and to all the rewards of this life that we might live for Him as life's great reward and to follow by the power of His Spirit imperfectly in community with other people A truthful life, full of truthful speech and truthful deeds. And in the doing of that, to show forth the character of the otherwise invisible and yet real truthful Christ. Okay? So I'm going to ask you some questions, and then we'll come to the table. Question number one, where are you acting out of your own human nature, as opposed to your new nature in Jesus? Maybe a different way of asking it is, who is the supreme value of your life? And here's how you'll know. What reward are you living for? What are you trying to win? What are you really seeking to accomplish? Whose kingdom are you trying to advance? And what do you do with the truth in the midst of it? Is it, is it something that is negotiable or is it non-negotiable because it's part of the character of the one that every day you get up to follow? Secondly, who are the people in your life with whom you've chosen to be completely transparent and to whom you've given permission to speak freely to what they see in you and you listen to? That's part of the equation, too. And if there's a reason that you're not doing that, what is that reason? Because typically the reason is because I think I know what they might say. Well, then enlist them and let them say it. For the good of the kingdom. For the good of your own soul thirdly who are you failing to give the benefit of the doubt to knowing that they will not always deserve it but typically they deserve it more frequently than it's given fourthly who have you given good reason to doubt to and what can you do by God's grace to begin to undo that to rebuild what is broken lastly What is this message and all of your answers to these questions or whatever else the Lord is saying to you, suggest now that you need to do with your heart because here's what you can't do with your heart. You can't fix it, but there is one who can. So bring yourself to Him. If you've never done that, do it for the first time. If you're going, yeah, I need to do that again. Okay, come to Him with your heart. Confess your ineptitude and sin. Repent of the idols that you're living for and learn again to follow the Lord. Take up His rhythm of grace. The habits and practices that the Spirit uses together in community to form and make us like the Savior, to give us a heart like His, to give us a life that in ever-increasing fashion, little by little, day by day, grows in our ability to reflect His character, integrity, and truthfulness. Because if that's who we're following, then that's, what ought to be happening in our lives, okay? So think about that before you come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the one who alone has character that is perfect, whose integrity is absolutely and utterly impeachable. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the one who is himself the truth and who nevertheless laid down his life to rescue radically untruthful people. Lord, we praise you for that. For the grace of that, for the mercy of that, for the love in that, for the humility that we see in that. We are undeserving and nevertheless. Lord, you have laid down your life to purchase and to redeem us, to give us mission, to give us meaning, to give us purpose, to bring us forgiveness, to bring us redemption to take our mistakes and to turn them around and use them in ways that actually, in the end, bring forth good. There's an opportunity for redemption in every one of our stories because of the power of the gospel of Jesus. And I pray that we would embrace that as we think on Him and on these things in this message and ponder the gospel before coming to this table. Lord, speak to us, we pray, by Your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.